Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined by my co-host today, Matt DeBear. And Matt, Penn State won this week. They they won this. It was the Super Bowl for one of the teams involved. And I'll give you a hint. That team did not win. No, it was... Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good good adjective to describe what exactly happened without being too graphic. Hilarious. And, and too... That's, that's a good one. It just... It was... <laughs> It was. Uh, it brought back memories, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later. It brought back some memories of uh, some of the 2016 games, um, and you know, just the whole second half resurgence, and um, just you know, 30 was it 37, 38 unanswered points, whatever it was, just something outrageous that uh, I think we all enjoyed ourselves thoroughly. Yeah, it, it had the vibe of you know, I was thinking of last year's game uh, against Maryland was a big one. Uh, two years ago against Michigan State, where uh, it it just seemed like Penn State had some anger it wanted to get out against Pitt because of uh, stuff that Pitt did. And, uh, oh my God, did they do that? Because it ended 51-6. to Went to the locker room uh, 14-6. It should have gone to, probably should have gone to the locker room 7-6, but Pat Narduzzi is bad at communication, apparently. Uh, And then Penn State came out in the second half, and really, really dominated all three phases of the game. And Matt, I think that's the thing that stuck out to me as I'm racking my brain as, of you know, what was the big takeaway from this game? It just seemed to me like at a certain point, Penn State, you know, it, it went, we're done playing with our food. We're just going to eat. And then there was nothing on in any of the three at, uh, phases of the game of football that Pitt could do. Yeah, and I... I texted you or tweeted this i can't remember there was there was a lot of communication going on on saturday night um in many different forms but it felt like despite the the gaudy rushing totals and the seven to six score for most of the first half that penn state wasn't playing all that badly it was a lot of what we had seen the week before against appalachian state where it was a lot of self-inflicted drop passes stupid penalties um penalties that probably shouldn't have been called if you want to want to loop that in there as well but they weren't they were just you know a a hair off it felt like you know even even the 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 rushing issues um that james franklin actually addressed after the game and we have a post up on the site about it right now um kind of detailing some of the adjustments that they made with the their defensive ends primarily um and we won't get into all the specifics of it but essentially getting into the locker room and who knows what they said, but I, I answered someone um, on Twitter or in Slack or something earlier today uh, on Sunday about this, that it, you know, they didn't really change up a whole lot. They kind of just got their feet under them. And it's weird that it takes, you know, a 20 minute halftime break and getting off the field and everything. But I think especially with the young team, and so many players really experiencing that kind of atmosphere and that kind of intensity for the first time, like a lot of those defenders, especially at linebacker and defensive tackle specifically, mm-hmm. I think the opportunity to get into the locker room, have the lead, and just kind of get with the coaches and you know get settled down, remind them about you know a couple little details to, to remember. And they really came out and. And even though they didn't score in that first possession of the second half, they kind of, again, it was a penalty, I believe, that kind of short-circuited the drive before they punted it away. They looked like they were just, they were physically the better team. And as we talked about that a, quite a bit with Nick on the podcast last week previewing the game, yep. 
that Absolutely. that regardless of, you know, we, I think we, both you and I at least thought the score was going to be closer. Nick was uh, very much in line with the blowout, but they were able to, um, you know, let that talent take over. Like we, like all of us expected them to do probably just not to that, that extreme. Yeah. I mean, the, that was kind of, uh, that was what was so fascinating to me was the thing that was working so well for Pitt all game was, or at least in the first half, we're going to run the ball. We're going to control the clock. We're going to run it between the tackles because we know that Penn state, the the weakness of the defense coming into the season was going to be, it was viewed as defensive tackle. It was viewed at linebacker and it was viewed at safety. Well, they just handed the ball off to Quadri Allison and had, uh, George Aston up there blocking for him, and as you know, as a fullback, just blowing through those holes, and that's how it looked like Pitt was getting into a rhythm, and that's how it felt like Pitt was in the game. But then at some point, Penn State just went, "Yeah, you're not going to be able to do that anymore." And when the game came to, uh, you know, I know Pitt had that one big uh, jet sweep that went for a big game in the first quarter. For the most part, they did not have the athletes or the speed or the talent on the perimeter to be able to do much of anything. So that got taken away. There was the fact that there was whether it was their receivers getting open or uh, their coaching staff just not having as much faith in Kenny Pickett as I thought they needed to have. Like I actually kind of felt bad for Pickett because he needed to throw and the coaching staff just would not let him do that. That wasn't working. So when... What you planned on doing wasn't working when what you would have had to go to in an emergency wasn't working. It's going to lead to an ugly game. And we saw Penn State take advantage of that, whether it was on the ground. Miles Sanders had an outstanding afternoon or evening, I suppose, 16 carries, 118 yards, no touchdowns. Trace McSorley solid through the air. Uh, But Matt, I think the guy that we have to talk about if we're talking about a Penn State player is uh, K.J. Hamler, who three receptions, 40 yards, a touchdown, one carry, 32 yards, and a touchdown. He looks like something that we have not seen out of a Penn State receiver in the James Franklin era. He, he really, um, and I saw someone um, in one of our slacks um, late last night slash early Sunday morning um, use the analogy that he's what we thought Derek Williams was going to be. And it's probably the closest thing to a Penn State player or a Penn State analogy that you want to think of. Um, certainly in my 18 years as a fan of the team, fan of the program, there hasn't really been a guy like that at receiver. I think um, you know, we don't have to look too far back for a guy that you know, has that, the ability, that, ha- that feeling that anytime he touches the ball, it can go for six. We, we had that for three years with Saquon Barkley, um, who ironically enough did that earlier today for the Giants, by the way. Woo! Um, but I found myself every time the ball went towards him, he was receiving a kick that you just have that feeling like he's going to break it or he has an opportunity. He's going to have an opportunity to. And when he gets it, it feels like he's one. If he doesn't, then he's one broken tackle one, you know, one guy away from, from actually making that, that big play. And whether it's his ability to avoid contact, whether it's his speed, whether it's um, – I've been impressed with probably the most his ability to break tackles. Um, he's not a big guy, obviously, and he's he's strong, though. He's um, I think part of that is the athleticism allowing him not to 
not to take those direct hits that are are more difficult to to shake off, but um, he's just that that instant ex- instant excitement kind of guy that you got to find ways to get ball the ball in his hand. We saw it early on with the the jet sweep that he took for what, 34 yards, I believe it was something like that for the opening score just a couple minutes into the game. Um, he had the kickoff after Pitt's only touchdown of the game where he leaped and then attempted to leap off of, I think is yeah, the best just way bounced to describe off it. Two dudes midair. Like, um, but even that, you know, I obviously didn't, he didn't take it all the way, but it, it sure had that feeling like he was, you know, he was that one, one missed tackle away from, from taking it back for six points. And it's, it's, um, fortuitous among other words that, um, he was ready to go from the start because, um, like I hit on earlier, they just weren't able to get everything quite in sync early on. Um, but he you know, had the, the big run and then the, the touchdown pass at the end of the half or touchdown reception, I should say at the end of the half that really, um, gave Penn state, obviously the eight point lead. They probably were a little bit fortunate to have because of, because of the penalties, because of, um, the 200 some yards of rushing yard, 200 some rushing yards they gave to Pitt. Um, the, you know, four points that Pitt left on the field with the, the missed field goal and the missed extra point, And then the, the black punt, I think. Well, um, there was also, they went for it on fourth and three and got stonewalled. So that, that too, yeah, it was just fourth really, and three, like knocking on the doorstep. <laughs> not, not to hit, not to delve too much into to Pitt's offensive strategy or, or lack thereof, but I was very clearly, I think the right decision for them to do that, but what uh, oh, was absolutely. that play call? Yeah, just you're you're hitting them so hard up the middle, and then you run something slow developing off the tackle, and Sharif Miller just took what three dudes out to to free up Nick Scott to make the play. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's what it that that's kind of what it seemed like. They Pitt had, and I just alluded to this. They had one idea going into this game, and it was a really good idea because it was being played in the. It was being played in a monsoon. It's what they do really well, and it's attacking Penn State's biggest weakness defensively. And it says a lot about uh, some of the guys that Penn State has on defense, uh, whether defensive tackle, linebacker, whomever. It says a lot about Brent Pry and his ability to go into uh, the locker room at halftime and go, we need to tweak this, this, and this. And then they went out and they were able to execute that. I, my, I was so concerned after watching uh, the Appalachian State game that what was going to end up happening was Penn State was going to get some kind of cushion, but they were eventually going to get worn down by what Pitt was going to do. But as the game went on, it just looked like they went, they got stronger. And I, I think we're at a point where, like, I don't think the Penn State defense, Matt, is as good as what we saw uh on Saturday night against Pitt, uh, just because I don't think they're going... One, I don't think Pitt's especially, probably especially great. But two, you know, when you're going against a team that one-dimensional, if you're able to take their one-dimension away, it's over. And they were able to do that. But I also don't think it's nearly as bad as uh, the unit that showed up against, uh, in the fourth quarter against Appalachian State, but at the same time, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, like we have basically seven quarters of evidence 
This entire game and the first three quarters against Appalachian State that shows this is a really, really good defense. So I just I want to take the pulse of the defense right now. Like I, it's a little early to put expectations on it. It's a little early to say anything too sweeping. But what do you think about it uh, through the first two games of the season? You know, coming off of such a dominant performance. I think the if I had to choose one word to describe them, and I think James Franklin alluded to this a little bit after the game on Saturday, that they're very opportunistic um, for the most part. Obviously, the the twenty eight unanswered points or um, whatever it was against Appalachian State in the fourth quarter, notwithstanding, but they they did it on with the exception of the the touchdown run on Saturday against Pitt. Um, they had the overtime interception against Appalachian State. They have found a way to make plays when they've needed to make plays. Yeah. Um, they found a way to hold Pitt to um, just the one touchdown, just the one field goal attempt, um, whether it was the um, Amani Oruwarwe, Oruwarwe interception um, on the, the long throw, whether it was um, you know, Sharif Miller blowing up the fourth down play, what, you know, whatever it was that they were able to, to do at key moments. Um, you don't want to rely on it, but I think that's probably the, the best way to describe them. I want to go back to one thing that you were kind of hitting on though, that uh, the answer that plays into the same question. I thought early on Pitt learned that they weren't going to be able to throw the ball. Um, and I think it, it manifested itself in the Kenny Pickett scrambles. I'm looking at the stats right now. He had four was credited with 14 carries. There were the three sacks in the second half. Um, so you figure there were 11 plays where he either was designed run or he bailed on, on a pass play. And in the first couple drives where Pitt converted third downs or got out of second and long situations to make it third and manageable, it wasn't his arm. It was his ability to, to extend the play and do just enough to, to keep it alive, keep the chains moving, get it, keep the, keep it ahead of the sticks kind of thing. Um, and early on, it was pretty apparent that in certainly in passing situations, they were going to struggle to, to block Penn state. Kevin Givens in his first game of the year after <laughs> missing the first was just, they, they couldn't block him. They did not have an answer for him in the first two or three series. Now he, you know, it didn't always lead to, to making a play himself or having a teammate make a play, but probably more than anyone else along the line, he was able to blow up those passing plays. And I think while it didn't um, lead to positives early on, you know, it led to scrambles and extended drives. I think it ultimately led to pitch realization that they could, were not going to be able to throw the ball with any consistency. Um, Kenny Pickett at one point was seven of 14 for 30 yards. I believe it was, he finished nine of 18 for, for 55 yards in the one interception. Um, Part of that is him. I think he's a, a true sophomore starting. I believe it's his third career game. If I'm, if Mike Math is right, um, and the like expectations that, yeah. that were were heaped on him coming out of the Miami game last year were just borderline ridiculous and and probably quite frankly unfair to him. Um, but I think the bigger problem that that hurt their passing game. And this is a credit to Penn State as much as anything. The Penn State secondary, even without John Reed, who missed the game either for for a rest after he showed some rust in week one or a minor injury. Obviously, they're not going to get into that. But I think they did a good, uh, certainly a good job containing Pitt's receivers. But there just isn't there isn't that big play threat like like Pitt's had in, certainly in the first two years of this series. 
there isn't anyone. You know, Taysir Max is a, a solid player. Um, um, Allison's a, you know, a functional receiver. Darren Hall, George Aston, they're all they have guys who are are good, but there's not that one guy that's going to scare you. And I think that because they were able to contain the passing game, that also allowed them to commit to the run even more than they already were, um, along with those adjustments. So um, I think a big part of why they succeeded in the second half was, um, and I'd, I'd have to go back and watch it a little more closely, but I think getting Micah Parsons in more regularly um, and hopefully his, his little late injury there isn't a big deal. Um, getting Jesse Lukita in um, and and Cam Brown, you saw, I tweeted it from the, the account, on the blog account on Saturday game. You see why they're so high on Cam Brown. He's you know, not consistent, you know, as a fir- true first year starter for him, but he but his high points that. are high. He's he's yeah. he's involved in a lot of big plays for the defense. So I think kind of getting you know settling on who they who they trust at linebacker, and I think there's a, a ton of credit has to go to the defensive tackles. We talked about Givens, uh, Robert Windsor had a solid game, Ellison Jordan, who has been a you know a very pleasant surprise. I don't think any of us expected him to be as good as he's been right now coming off of the, the major knee injury at some point earlier in the year, he missed spring ball wasn't a hundred percent during camp from what we understand. Um, he's been, been phenomenally drew the, the, the holding call that led to the safety. Um, he's just been through two games, um, a really pleasant surprise. Like I said, and I think he's you kind of imagine he's only going to get better as he is able to, to build up even more strength after missing all that time with the, the lower body injury. Yeah, I I, uh, I was going to bring up Parsons uh, momentarily because he's like he's the guy that's just so fascinating to me in that like I don't like I don't know how Penn State keeps him off the field because with no, this is not meant as disrespect to Jan Johnson. He is uh he's a very smart football player. He knows exactly what he needs to do. The issue is the ceiling is just so low on him that he's never going to be the kind of guy that uh changes games. And Parsons, you can just see his speed, his athleticism, his physicality as he gets those reps in and those are going to kind of be uh the big things over the next couple of weeks against uh Kent State and against Illinois that I'm fascinated to watch like that to me is what needs to happen like Micah Parsons has to play as much as possible because his ceiling is just so so high Jesse Lukita, you mentioned getting him on the field. I thought it was really important getting him some reps and getting him in game experience because, I, I mean, he is physically someone who can compete right now. He's 6'3", 236. Like, he's a big, big dude. If Penn State's linebackers are those two in Cam Brown by the end of the year and it's not out of necessity, it has the potential to have a very, very good linebacking core. And I have to, again, I have to go back and watch a little bit more closely, but I would bet that there was some type of correlation between what Penn, when Penn State's defense really started cooking and when uh, Parsons was in the game and starting to make his... Uh, 
starting to make his presence felt. Uh, looking through some other stuff on this game that uh, I think we need to talk about, I think we have to go to the other side of the coin uh, and talk about some not as positive things. Uh, there, we, we touched on the rushing defense enough early on. I don't want to hammer on that. What I do want to talk about is the receiving core outside of KJ Hamler because uh, Trace McSorley, 14 for 30 on the night, uh, that 14 for 30 could not be any more misleading. I, off the top of my head, uh, I could think of three drops by DeAndre Tompkins. There was one, maybe two by Juwan Johnson. Uh, it, it seemed like, and Matt, I like I instinctively want to blame this on the rain, but those two specific guys had issues with drops last week in a... Uh, in a not downpour against Appalachian State. So, th- where, like, what are your uh, thoughts on this? Is this something that has to be viewed as a concern now, or do you think we can still go? Listen, early season jitters. They just played uh, about as weird of a game as you can weather wise. They have two weeks to get things ironed out before Ohio State gets here. I think, and that's a, that's a loaded question, yeah. which I know is the point, but. Yeah. Um, with Tompkins, it's, it strikes me as totally mental. Um, that's probably true for Johnson too. And of the four, of the five that you mentioned, the three for Tompkins, I remember one for Johnson, there might've been a second, but of, of two of Tompkins were, were not rain induced. They were more bouncing off the hands. The third one was that, that quick slant right before Mark Allen scored to make it 44 to six that went right through his hands that you could probably um, in in different circumstances, probably do contribute to the weather, given that was the third of the night. That's probably one of those that you, you want to see him come up with. Um, it's and it's weird because he's been such a reliable punt returner. You know, he's not had issues since um, his first year back there, which was 2015, I believe, if I'm remembering this right. Um, returning punts, where he's had issues handling the ball. And, you know, we had the punt return. And so he's, he's effective back there. It's just, it strikes me as something that's totally in his head. And is one of those things that hopefully given the, the next two games and the, the perceived quality of who they're going up against that you have the opportunity. It feels like it just, he needs that one game where he, you know, is targeted a handful of times, you know, if it's catchable, he catches it. And, you know, he has that, you know, six for 80 kind of game with a touchdown. And it just and that's it. It's you know he's has that that positive first step and and we're set. And I think it's the same thing with Johnson too. And it's it's ironic that in a group that is as absurdly talented as the wide receiver core is, we haven't even seen the most talented young player yet in Justin Shorter. Yep. That um, the guys that we kind of thought we knew what they were um, have been the two through admittedly eight quarters, a pretty small sample size here have been the weak links. And besides Johnson's drop, he had the the pretty obvious, didn't even need to really do it, offensive pass interference on the, That's I believe right. it was Penn State's Sam- first offensive. No, it wasn't the first offensive It, it was play, a little but, bit later in the uh, in the first half, but it was a swing pass out to Miles Sa- Sanders where it looked, I believe he brought it all the way. He either uh, house yeah, it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking right now. It actually, it actually was their first possession of the, of the second Second half, they oh, okay. Sanders okay. Sanders carried for eight yards, and then on second and two, um, Johnson got called for the, the long pass interference that negated the sixty-four yard 
um, touchdown pass in the wheel route to Miles Sanders, which ironically enough was very similar to a touchdown pass and catch that uh, McSorley threw to Barkley um, in the 2016 game, going the other direction, but um, very similar kind of play up the sideline that, um, like I said, didn't even need to commit the, the, the interference. It was pretty obvious. You know, he, he threw a pretty obvious pick. He could have stopped that route probably two yards before he ran into the guy and would have served his purpose by drawing the defense away from Sanders out of the backfield. But um, just, and we hit on it a lot after the, the first game, just mental errors by guys that you're, you're surprised to see it from because they've been so key um, over the last couple of seasons. Um, and that, that's probably more than anything why I, um, between that and the next two games, to kind of get some some issues ironed out, why I, I don't think you move completely away from them. I think you're you're going to need both those guys um, in big moments later on this year, and you owe it to them because one, they shouldn't need to worry about you know if they continue to struggle, it shouldn't be a a critical issue against Kent State or Illinois coming up, but. There are seniors that have been, well, I guess in Johnson's case, a junior, but a fourth-year player that um, have have made big plays over the last couple of years, and you don't just move on after after a couple a couple games that have been been below expectations. Yeah, it's weird because like it, I expect the mental lapses out of uh, the young guys. Like offensively, fortunately, they haven't happened all that much outside of uh ricky slade putting the ball on the ground a few times in the last uh against Pitt. uh they've been far more prominent on defense i think like i i you know i was talking to some friends during the game and one of them basically said like you know why is our defense so you know why is it struggling so much and i just went you know it's incredible how they go from super looking like they're a super talented group to a super young group so uh, so easily. And that's why I was so worried coming into this game was I thought those young players, whether they be on the offense or on the defense, wouldn't be able to uh, put together an entire performance. And, you know, fortunately for the most part, they were able to get the job done. Now the concern I do think is on guys like Juwan Johnson and DeAndre Tompkins to kind of it's weird to say that about Tompkins in a game where he uh, where he housed a punt for a touchdown, uh, but like they have, like you said, they have those issues they have to iron out, and they're also going to be such major contributors, or they are expected to be such major contributors down the stretch run of this season that, like, I get wanting to say uh, KJ Hamler, Mac Hippenhammer. Uh, Brandon Polk and uh, Justin Shorter are going to be the guys that get most of the receiver reps. You still can't really do that because they have the other guys have their stuff they have to work through. I am very interested to see how things work out once Shorter gets back uh, uh, into the rotation uh, once he's healthy and once he's out there because you know he's uh, there's a reason that we're all so excited uh, about him, but. Until then, I mean, they they haven't needed him early, and I, you know, that was so big against Pitt was not needing to start to pull out all the stops. Uh, I'm interested in hearing this from you, Matt, because uh, my guess is our answer is going to be a little different. But like, how, how was there any point in this game where you were like, 
oh my God, this might actually not happen. Penn State might not be able to win this game. Or were you confident the entire time? I think that the the one point where I had a, a little bit of concern was the drive that ended with the I was after the turnover. I think it was Slade's first fumble. The, that's the one that led to the the fourth down um, stop inside the five. I, you feel like, um, and I can I can be I haven't even said it yet. I can feel our our good friend Kevin Rudy's eyes rolling in the back of his head that. The, he he's not a believer in momentum, right. but if, if Pitt goes in and they get six points there, then the crowds into it. They're up at least thirteen to seven, if not, well, I, they're up at least twelve to seven. We can't assume the extra right. point. Yes, um, but they're the crowds into it. Penn State really hadn't done anything on offense since the first series, um, and it's you you wonder how things play out from there. Um, with a, a young team that's um, you know, on the road in a, a, not a hostile environment, but an energetic environment, we'll call it. Um, but I think when they, they, they had that hold and then I got to go look here and see what they did from there. Um, I believe they fumbled it again. Um, I'm trying, I ended up, they fumbled, but then they ended up punting. Yeah. I, I, this is, that's the punt where the um, uh, Lopez, uh, muffed it and they were able to recover it um espn's game track doesn't exactly clarify that very well but i think they're able to get out of that and then they force the the pit fumble uh or the, the block punt that's kind of the, the whole sequence there i think that the, the the fourth down stop the the solid punt from gillikin the defensive hold and then the the block punt and the bad snap is really what um you know, swung the game, and I think once they got into the halftime at 14-6, I felt pretty good. Even though they didn't score right away like you and I were talking about during halftime, um, you felt like they kind of had things a little bit more under control. And when they went up um, 21-6, it really felt like they were very comfortable being pretty conservative on offense and daring Pitt to, at that point, go – go long go a long field to make it a, a two score or get it from a two score game to a one score game then when they they get the safety it becomes a three score game um you know they had a couple of chances where probably in in a different scenario they they either kick the field goal or they go for it on fourth down where they were more than content with letting Blake Gillikin continue to, to drop a pitching wedge inside the five yard line <laughs> and, and keep daring Pitt to go go a long field to, to cut it to just a two score game at that point and obviously that inevitably led to the, the Tompkins touchdown. Um, but I, th- I think, and you'd, you'd have to ask the, the players and the coaches about this, but it felt like watching on TV at least that when they went up 21-6, they kind of knew that, that they had this, that the defense had some confidence, that the offense um, you know, had shown with a, a relative amount of consistency they could move the ball if they didn't, they didn't create self-inflicted wounds. Mm-hmm. That that they were okay. So I guess it was really that that brief time between the the first Slade fumble and the fourth down stop that there was a little bit of nerves, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was it was pretty limited. And and to Penn State's credit, they did a, a real good job um, stemming any sort of momentum swing that was happening with that little you know quick change and um, near miss. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and lie. Like, I was terrified. Like, I thought when Pitt 
was marching down the field for the drive that eventually ended with the fourth and three. I to that point, there was one really egregious. I believe it was like Sharif Miller got called for a a, a just garbage personal foul. Yeah. Uh, for rough it, not uh yeah for unnecessary roughing. Yeah, late hit something like that. That uh you know that was terrible. There was the. Uh, Miles Sanders lengthy run where uh, you know that gets called back for a, just again a terrible block in the back play. It looked like Penn State's offense was just off by a step. It looked like Pitt's offense was going to keep just pounding the ball uh, between the tackle. Like it just felt like this game had the opportunity to get to. I don't want to say a nervy place, but a place where you're suddenly going like, oh my God, like Pitt might actually do this. Like, again, I, I mean, I don't believe in momentum is like a, you know, a thing that like leads to you, uh, you know, it adds to your win probability or anything like that. But I do believe in it as like a, your one team's a little more demoralized and other teams a little more uh, fired up. And it seemed like Pitt was getting to that point. And, it seemed like Pitt was going to start letting, uh, you know, maybe they're going to start letting Kenny Pickett make some more plays, whether it's with his arm or whether it's with his legs. And they're just going to keep feeding Quadri Olsen. They were going to keep Penn State off the field. And if all those things kept happening and Pitt was avoiding self-inflicted wounds, I don't know how, like, maybe this is a different game. Like, I'm not saying that it's suddenly going from, 51-6 Penn State to 21-14 Pitt or anything like that, but I can see a scenario in which this game ended up not snowballing away for the Panthers, but they just kept shooting themselves in the foot. They just kept uh, making mistakes. Penn State kept capitalizing. Penn State, I, I think we said on the, uh, I think one of us said on the last podcast, like, you can go into a football game with the best game plan that any team can put together. That game, what matters and what team usually ends up winning is the team that is able to do get away from that game plan and adjust once you get punched in the mouth and you have to do something different. And Pitt just could not do that. Uh, kind of the last thing I want to touch on uh, with this game, Matt, is uh, I think we would be remiss uh, to not uh, discuss kind of the last quarter, quarter of the half in this game where... Uh, I, I think Penn State was faced a little bit of a dilemma in whether or not they had they should keep going for it and really try and uh, use this to send a message and quote unquote run up the score, or if they should have you know called off the dogs, been happy with uh, you know thirty to six over fifty one to six. So. My guess, again, my guess is on this one, you and I are going to align pretty similarly, but where are you on that uh, entire discussion? I, I, by the time, well, I guess it depends on when this is actually posted online, but as of 8.30 on, on Monday morning, I'll have some, a column up on the site that kind of dives into this a little bit more, but um, James Franklin has shown over... I guess we'll just go a little over the last two years because there really weren't a ton of opportunities the first two years to to run up the score on anyone. It was a matter of survive and and hope you don't get anyone killed behind that offensive line. But in the last two years and two games, 
there's one other situation where we've seen him probably twist the knife a little bit in a game that had been decided. And that was the Michigan State game a couple years ago yep. where um, I had to go back and remember exactly how this played out. But it was relatively late in the game, probably five minutes or so left. And Trace McSorley was still in. Penn State was up 38-16, I believe was the score. Um, the game's certainly in hand. They've got the their ticket to the, the Big Ten Championship game is punched at this point. And Trace McSorley's still in and throws what turns into about a 40-yard catch and run for a touchdown to um, now former Nittany line Andre Robinson. Aww. And the, the year before, as I'm sure most of us remember, Mark D'Antonio um, sent his, I don't know if he was an All-American or All-Big Ten center in, but Jack Allen comes in with Michigan State up, I believe it was 48-16, to 45-16, something, something like, like that. that. It, it, same kind of scenario. The game was over. And and I was there covering the game for another site, and um, the, he comes in after I believe Penn State fumbled the kickoff, or th- there was a fumble and it was a short field. It was first and goal, in, you know, inside the ten, obviously. And Jack Allen comes in and takes a pitch and runs off tackle and ends up scoring a touchdown. And I don't remember if, if Franklin said anything after the game about it. But it was one of those things where you knew if he got the opportunity, he wasn't going to forget. And he did it a year later. And um, Mark D'Antonio was asked about that after the game and pretty much said, you know, you know what paybacks are. And, you know, it's our job to stop it. And, um, you know, I think he alluded to the – he didn't allude to the, the play specifically, but he alluded to the fact uh-huh. that they had, they had beat Penn State pretty handily the year before. And then you contrast that with – or as you compare it at first to – how much running of his mouth Pat Narduzzi has done specifically towards Penn State since he was hired in late 2014, early 2015, whenever, whenever it actually happened. I went back and I looked earlier today about to find all the, all the instances of, of Pat Narduzzi <laughs> taking, taking shots, we'll call it. And, and we rewrote about this for the site a year ago. Um, he had a, a very not subtle quote about Franklin's coaching of Christian Hackenberg. Um, if you remember the game in Pittsburgh two years ago where Franklin, um, for lack of a better term, was complaining about um, the clapping by the pit defense, which was throwing off Penn State's snap count. Um, and Narduzzi pretty much just, you know, called a spade a spade and said, you know, it just sounds like another excuse to me. Before six weeks later, he made pretty much the same excuse during a uh, or after a game against Virginia Tech. Um, later that same year, after Lamont Wade committed to Penn State, he tweeted, "Pride becomes before the fall." On Christmas Day, no less. Um, and then just last week, he um, was asked about Lamont Wade by a um, local Pittsburgh uh, media member, and you know said, "Well, we don't see a whole lot of him. He doesn't play a whole lot." And it was one of those that you just, you know, why? <laughs> and, and, and that doesn't even begin to get into the things that you and I have heard, Bill, about some of the things Dr. Doozy has supposedly said along the recruiting trail. Um, if you, you guys remember a couple years ago before, before the season during the media days in Chicago, when um, the whole negative recruiting thing um, resurfaced and you know, there was 12 hours of controversy 
And I don't remember the exact quote, but essentially um, both Franklin and Sandy Barber very um, safely said that there were schools, one in particular, they didn't name any names, that had been implying that the NCAA was going to come back and sanction Penn State. And, you know, that was the, that's the tip of the iceberg, I guess, is about as far as, far as I'll go on the record. Um, but it was pretty obvious, I think, to anyone who read that, especially because they, you know, they were very specific to say it wasn't Ohio State, it wasn't Michigan, it wasn't Michigan State, it wasn't Notre Dame. Um, you know, that kind of leaves only yeah. one, one program left out there. And so you combine all that together, combine that with the Michigan State game from a couple of years ago, and this, and it's a game that Franklin has not been dragged into the war of words. He's been very focused for three seasons now that this it's the biggest game on our schedule because it's the next one we're playing. He is fully committed to the one game at a time mantra, but you, you know, you know, college coaches are notoriously, um, petty is the word you're looking for. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) And James Franklin got the opportunity on Saturday night to twist the knife, knife a little, didn't have to say anything. Um, to yeah. to kind of make his point, and and this is where the, you contrast it with Antonio's quote with what Narduzzi said on Saturday night after the game. He was asked, you know, what he thought about the final touchdown, which was the the oh so beautiful pass from Sean Clifford to Brandon Polk that <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on, I think. <laughs> and and Narduzzi's quote is, "I've got it right here in front of me. That's on them. You've got to sleep at night. That's just where we're at right now." We'll have another shot. We'll have another shot. It ain't over. Like, God, ble- God bless him for his immediate reaction to that being, you know, you just got whooped around 51 to 6 in your own building with, you know, Mother Nature trying to level the playing field a little bit. And your response is, eh, we'll just get him next time. Like, God bless him for that. Bill, Bill ask me what the, the scoring margin is in the last two years, the last eight quarters of football between these two teams. It's uh, if I ha- it's probably something like 84 to 16, I would guess. 84-20. 84-20. And if you, if you go back and include the second half of the 2016 game, it's even more ridiculous. Someone sent me the numbers. On Saturday night, and if you're listening, I apologize for for not remembering exactly what it is. But you've been whooped up and down the field for two full games now, where last year it was plainly obvious that you were just trying to keep it from getting out of hand. And your your immediate reaction after after all this, after all the talk that you've had, I at the risk of going on even more, and I can hear Nick who is probably in bed right now as we're recording this, rolling his eyes at the risk of going on even more. He, it, I don't blame James Franklin in the least. And that's not even taking into account the college football playoff committee ramifications, yep. Yep. the poll ramifications of a 51, six win versus a 30 to six win or 37 to six win. Um, this is a guy that for, for, three and a half, almost four years now has been tried to have been pulled into this petty war of words with a program that is going in the opposite direction of his, that is so desperate to make this more of a rivalry than it is. 
um, that wants to create this hate and this disrespect and, and all this. And he's kept his mouth shut, hasn't said anything, you know, he's been reporters and coaches and everyone else has tried to get him to say something and he hasn't. And he, he said all he needed to in the last 10 minutes or so where he left Trace McSorley in throwing passes. He threw down, you know, he was thrown with, with Sean Clifford. Um, that, that really said all he needed to say. Right. He, he did everything short of let Lamont Wade take a hand off into the end zone to like, Really drive that knife in. I mean, like, just look, like, trying to take the Penn State and Pitt context out of this, like, the more, like, beatdowns of an opposing team you can have, the better as you're a team that is trying to navigate the season and make it to the playoff. Especially when you're a team like Penn State, which, and I hate to say this, is probably losing a game or two this year. You need to have as many high points on your resume as you can possibly have and going on the road and beating a power five team 51 to six especially because you know if it's a power this power five team might end up winning you know if some stuff goes right six seven eight games like that's a big help then like you said all the stuff you add in about all the talking that Pitt has done all of the well I don't want to say that Pitt has done the Pat Narduzzi has done all the uh all the conversations about how and one thing that you didn't touch on, how James Franklin and Penn State are avoiding Pitt beyond next year, where the schedule between these two teams runs out in 2020. And listen, say whatever you want about uh, about whether or not this rival this series should continue. I'd love to see Penn State and Pitt continue in the capacity of like in some capacity, even if it's you know two games in Happy Valley for one in Pittsburgh or something like that. That would be cool, but the last however long has been that James Franklin and Penn State as a football team and as an athletic department are avoiding Pitt. They are scared of Pitt. They do not want to have to play Pitt because they know, and this is true, and like I don't like I don't think saying this is controversial. If Penn State beats Pitt, it's what it's supposed to do. If Pitt beats Penn State, it's a massive upstate and one that could upset and one that could derail Penn State season a little bit. Like, I don't think there's an issue in saying that right now. And I don't think there's an issue in saying that Penn State sees that and is why Penn State doesn't want to schedule Pitt. But I think when you're saying that Penn State is scared of Pitt for that reason, like, that's something that James Franklin has heard for however many years. He wants to make sure that by the time this series ends, I, I would I venture to guess that there's not going to be any discussion about whether or not Penn, Pitt is afraid of, Penn State is afraid of Pitt. He wants it all to be that Pitt is a Pitt should not ever want to play Penn State again because the f- margin of victory combined over the final two games is going to be like a hundred points if he has his way. So I think when you put all that together, like. I absolutely understand running up the score. Uh, I f- I was a little worried about keeping McSorley in uh, crappy weather. Uh, you know, you all you need is a uh, one uh, defensive lineman to slip and take him down by the leg, or one offensive lineman to roll up on his knee, and his entire season's over. And then Ward knows what happens. So I get that, but also putting Sean Clifford in and having him drop a dime 
to uh, Brandon Polk was the funniest thing that I've seen in my time as a Penn State fan that didn't involve Christian Hackenberg getting sacked by two rushing linemen. So whatever. Uh, yeah, I, it was fun. Like I think so much of it was how relatively low my expectations were coming in. I thought this was going to be a gross, ugly, nervy football game, and I think Penn State was able to come out on top. Uh, the last thing, person I want to shout out real quick is Blake Gilligan. Um, those of you who watched the Penn State-Ohio State game, and I want to say 2015, might remember that Penn State was in that game and competitive in that game for a while. Its issues came because Ohio State had its freaky Aussie punter, I think Cam Johnston at the time. Yes, and yes. they kept... Like, Penn State would get the ball, and it would get a first down. And then it would punt, and Penn State's punter at the time, uh, I want to say it was Daniel Pascarello or uh, Chris Gullah. Yes. One of the two just yeah. wasn't great. Like, they were in a... Like, they didn't have the kind of booming leg that you needed in those games. So they would punt the ball, and Ohio State would get the ball at the Ohio State. At, right at the 50-yard line, maybe, you know, I, within the 45, something like that. And they'd march down the field, and they'd either score, or they'd run three plays, get stuffed because Penn State's defense came to play that day, and then they would punt the ball, and Penn State would get the ball at its two. And Penn State would have to try and get some distance out, and then they would punt again. And then Ohio State gets the ball at the Penn State 40, and that just kept happening and happening and happening. And it felt like Penn State was slowly being, you know, getting the life sucked out of them. The defense, because they had to be ramped all the way up to 11, and that's just not sustainable. And the offense, because they had to try and move the ball 90 yards at a time on Ohio State's defense, which it just was not doing that year. And Penn State was able to do that on uh, Saturday night because Blake Gillikin had one of the best games that he has had in a Penn State jersey. Like, it really, like, for how stereotypical it is to fawn on about a Big Ten punter on a podcast for a Big Ten football team, it really was an impressive performance out of him, and I think we had to uh, had to commend him really quickly. Uh, Matt, are there any final things from you, this game that you want to mention before we do talk about exactly one other Big Ten football game? I, I don't think so. I think that an analogy of the 2015 Ohio State-Penn State game, though, is, is pretty interesting. I, I haven't done this, but I think if you would go back and kind of compare this game on Saturday to that one, there's probably a lot of similarities, even down to the team that's just flat out more talented factor that that we both harped on for the last you know, little over a week yep. now um and right down to that the punning scenario i think you know the, the kind of number of things that you get mentioned during a game when when we're all online and, and sharing stories through whatever medium someone did mention that last night that might have even been you bill that it was eerily similar to that where um they they just knew, like I said earlier, that that pit wasn't going to go ninety some yards um, and score mm-hmm. six points. Mm-hmm. It just it wasn't going to happen. And sooner or later, they were either going to make a mistake or the Penn State offense would would put points on the board. And and the, the punt return ultimately came out of that. So um, pretty interesting analogy and something that if I think of it this week, I'll I'll go back and take a look at. Yeah, I mean that might be a that might be something we end up looking back on. Uh, 
But the last thing I want to talk about, uh, this week's Big Ten slate sucked, because this week's college football game slate sucked. But there was exactly one Big Ten game that I think was important to shout out. And that was a Michigan State team that really underwhelmed in week one, going down to Arizona and losing to the fight in Herm Edwards's. Uh, Arizona State beat them 16-13. to uh, I fell asleep when it was 13-3 to uh, Sparty, and I, honest to God, cannot believe that this happened. But, uh, I mean, one, <clears throat> I want to just get some jokes off real quick. Um, haha, this is very funny. Herm Edwards uh, being a good college football coach is something that I did not see coming. Like, he's someone that I thought was always going to be fine with the X's and O's, but then when it came to being a college football coach, I thought that was going to be tough. Uh, partially because he got this job because his ex-agent is Arizona State's AD, which will never not be funny. But I think there's a serious uh, question to ask of Michigan State here. They could not run the ball. Brian Lewerke wasn't really working too much. He had a nice little connection with Cody White, but he wasn't able to do too terribly much else. I don't think, just kind of on a big picture scale, Matt, as I'm looking at Penn State's schedule, it might be uh, wishful thinking to think this, but if that Michigan State team is not the Michigan State team that we all kind of expected and they're just, you know, it's going to be an 8-4, and 9-3 and three year out of them, I think that's actually kind of big for Penn State. Because Michigan State is the team that kicks off the second half of their schedule, which includes, you know, a trip to Indiana, hosting Iowa, a trip to uh, Ann Arbor, and going against Wisconsin. Uh, did you get a chance to watch any of Michigan State, Arizona State? I watched from the second our game ended, I turned it on. Um, and I was able to stay up to the bitter end, um, thanks in large part, again, due to, uh, to Kevin Rudy texting me during the game. Um, they were also my, my upset. Uh, pick for the week um, in his little pool where won't get all the details, but won a few points on that one. Um, I'm going to go back to something to Bill Conley said coming out of week one when it was the the general gist of of the the column was is this team really bad or not? And they was asked about Penn State and he was asked about Michigan State and what he said kind of has stuck with me after their loss to Arizona State that. All of their issues from last year are still there. Namely, they can't run the ball um, effectively. They had, I'm looking right now, they had 63 yards on 27 carries. Yep. Um, it's just not good enough. And, you know, Lewerke had a solid game 27 to 39, 314 yards, a touchdown and interception. But they, they can't run the ball and they weren't able to um, create turnovers. They weren't able to make big plays and special teams. Um, and that's really a year ago what allowed them to cover up that those those major issues. Um, they give almost 400 yards passing, and I, I'd have to go back and look and see how that compares to last year. But um, they were they won a lot of close games last year, and like you and I talk about all the time, it's that's something that's not sustainable over a longer period of time. Um, and they were the beneficiaries a year ago of some very fortuitous weather. Um, not only the Penn state game, but the, the monsoon that Michigan game ended in. Um, I think they're still a good team. You, you don't win 10 games, 11 games, whatever it was last year that they won 
if you're not good, Mark D'Antonio's a hell of a coach. Um, but I think from a Penn State perspective, you can kind of use the same um, description that we use leading up to the pick game. Penn State's the more talented team. And last year, they, they certainly did not play well enough to win that game. Um, weather issues notwithstanding, they had so many mistakes, you know, interception, drops, passes, missed tackles, et cetera, penalties. Um, but if Penn State plays to their capabilities, they're, they're the more talented team, and most of the time that's what wins in college football. Mm-hmm. And I have not looked at the rest of the Michigan State schedule, but um, I just pulled it up here. Fortunately, it was easy to find. Um, they will probably be um, four and one coming to Penn State here in, um, in what four weeks, five weeks now. Um, they are off this weekend before going to Indiana, and, bef- and then they host uh, Central Michigan the week before. Uh, they host Central Michigan, and they host Northwestern before coming to Penn State on October thirteenth. And those are all games they'll be favored in. All games they should win. Um, but I don't know. It just it. It kind of, um, and I'm kind of losing my train of thought here a little bit talking about it, but I don't know. I, I, they're still a team that worries me because they're so well coached because they, you know, it's gone on long enough where the whole find a way to win thing kind of holds water yeah. because yeah. they've always found ways to win. Um, but it's a game at home. It's a game that there's enough players on Penn State's side that remember what happened last year. Um, and I think Penn State's well situated to take advantage of their weaknesses again if they are able to play up to to their their capability. Absolutely, and we'll uh, we'll see if that's the case in a, eh, a little over a month or so. But for now, uh, I think that's a bow on Penn State Pitt for this year. Uh, we're only doing uh, a Penn State Pitt recap probably one more time, so. Hope you all enjoy that. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, going to be interesting to see how the next couple of weeks shake out. I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a slight to say Penn State should have two comfortable wins on the horizon heading into Ohio State. So it's going to be fun. The next few weeks are going to be really fun, and we're excited to uh, go through it as fans with all of you. Thank you, as always, uh, for listening to Roar Lions Radio. Again, as always. Uh, Follow us on all our social media channels, Twitter, uh, Facebook. We're on Instagram as well. Subscribe to any of the various podcast platforms that we have. Buy some shirts. Uh, We have a flash sale that uh, is going to be over by the time that you listen to this, so sorry about that. Still buy a shirt anyway, because they're very nice shirts, and one of them we titled Our State, because it is our state. Last but not least, keep reading the site, keep supporting the site. Uh, there's nothing that we uh, enjoy more than being out in the tailgate fields or something like that and seeing someone in a shirt or having someone come up to us and say they're a fan of what we have going on. So if you do that, awesome. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For my co-host, Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.